they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Do you know how many times I've said just this week in my great and unmatched wisdom in every <laughs> facet of my life, no matter who I'm talking to? Pretty sure I said it to a priest at one point over the weekend. <laughs> He was not appreciative of that. <laughs> Bill sticks all his classes by saying that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's a great line. I love it. Yeah. Uh, it's just got to be the new way you say hello to people. Uh, hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. Uh, I'm your host, Mick, uh, Nick McGuire, joined as always by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. And... As promised, finally, we have senior legal analyst, Professor uh, Tom Cavanaugh with us as well. Hi, Tom. Missed you guys. It's great yeah, to be back. A lot of Wonderful fun. Wonderful to be here. Uh, usual stuff before we get started. Um, if you guys like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, want to see what we're up to, and we have some stuff that we're up to. Oh, let me tell you, as soon as I get done with this crap, um, <laughs> follow us on Twitter uh, at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, and the podcast itself, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, review us, share us, like us through there. We always appreciate the support. Now, finally. Drum roll. Drum roll. <laughs> Wait, do I have drums? No, that's not that's the wrong kind of drum. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I guess it is kind of a punchline, isn't it? That's the worst drum roll ever. <laughs> dramatic, I have dramatic piano. Is this any better? No, that's not any better. Um, anyways, <clears throat> guys, we're going to do a live event. Uh, Barcel Politics is hosting a uh, live show uh, held on Wednesday, November 20th at 6.30 p.m. in the great overpriced city of Naperville uh, on North Central's campus in Miley Swallow Hall. Um, it's going to feature myself, uh, Bill. Phil will be here in person. In, you can see him in person. In person. Wow. He is a real human being. Yeah. Uh, as well as um, Professor Tom Cavanaugh and resident super guest uh, Suzanne Chad as well. Dr. Suzanne Chad. That's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. It's going to be so much fun. Um, yeah. So put that on your calendar. We'll have more information on, um, I don't know about tickets, but whatever, some way of getting yeah. in there, something it, like that. It'll be free. It'll know? be free. Yeah. We're not going to ask you to pay for it yet. Yeah. We'll see how many people there. We'll no, see what kidding. turnout is. We'll and then see maybe what turnout is. Um, slices of cake from yeah. everyone. Um, yeah. So just put that on your calendars. Like I said, um, what the hell day was it? Uh, November 20th, which is uh, a Wednesday uh, at 6.30 p.m. on North Central's campus in Naperville. Um, yeah, put that on your calendars. Miley Swallow Hall. It's a heck of a hall, Nick. For sure. Good, good hall. For yeah. Sure. yeah. Tell you what. <laughs> um, it's just, we're, again, as much as I want to get back to our normal 
kind of cadence of the way we we do things. There's <laughs> been so much shit crammed into the past two weeks. It's it's just crazy. And we have Tom here finally because I feel like the past two to three weeks we've been saying, wouldn't it be great if we just had Tom here to kind of walk us through this? Um, so we have we have him here now. So we're definitely going to talk about impeachment, uh, and then we're obviously going to talk about the Supreme Court as well. Um, Bill, do you want to give us a rundown of some of the, again, batshit stuff that happened over there? Sounds good. Gentlemen, if I've learned anything this week, it's that under no condition should you ever talk about your plans to do crime. And you don't want to do crime, but if you do, never text about the crimes that you're going to do. But what if it's a really good one? We have to tell. Well, then you should text about it. (laughs) 100% of all lawyers on earth agree with what you're saying right right now. (laughs) So, of course, I'm referring to the text messages released last week between U.S. officials, super lawyer Rudy Giuliani and Ukrainian representatives about the prospect of Ukraine committing to an investigation into the 2016 presidential election and the family of Trump's Democratic rival, Joe Biden. It was just one of many bombshell stories on Ukraine and the ongoing impeachment inquiry. On Tuesday, the State Department blocked the scheduled deposition uh, by Gordon Sondland, uh, a key figure in Ukrainian controversy. Not to be outdone, Rudy Giuliani, Trump's personal attorney, said that he would not cooperate with the White House investigators and that he can't imagine anyone from the Trump administration would calling the House committees a kangaroo court. Later in the day, the Trump administration released a letter to the House stating, quote, it cannot permit this administration to participate in this partisan inquiry. Given that we have Professor Tom Cavanaugh uh, with us this week, we thought it would be fun to explore the legal aspects of the Ukraine scandal and the impeachment inquiry. For instance, can the executive branch not uh, just not participate in the impeachment hearing? Under what conditions can Giuliani assert uh, attorney-client privilege? What happens if the administration doesn't comply with the subpoenas? What's a quid pro quo? Uh, Tom, it feels as if the courts are going to be very busy over the coming months dealing with this. Before we dive into the legal weeds, anything in particular strike you about these recent developments? Well, we're going to spend the second half talking about some really big cases at the Supreme Court, and this is going to be a blockbuster year. But I think they are staying up nights worrying about resolving these impeachment questions because there's several, and we can talk about them right now, that I think are very likely to get to the court um, because these are uncharted waters. We've only done this twice in American history. In neither case did it result uh, in an acquittal. And it turns out, while it pains me to say this, my beloved constitution is a little bit short on details relative (laughs) to how one conducts an impeachment hearing. So uh, there is no uh, reference at all in the constitution to executive privilege. There's no reference in the Constitution to investigation or oversight authority for Congress. There's no constitutional rules for an impeachment trial. Um, There's very little uh, guidance in terms of of where we head. I would say this, while we've only twice impeached presidents, we've done so with respect to federal judges on a more regular basis. And it's from those sorts of decisions that we're likely to know something about what happens next. So I thought it might be helpful to just for a minute talk about what impeachment is and then how it's done, and then to turn to some of these uh, really interesting questions with respect to it. Um, Bill and I chatted before we went on air, and it turns out that a lot of our students are still sort of wondering, what's the process? And uh, we've both heard more than once that people think impeachment means the president has been removed from office, which it doesn't. And that Hillary Clinton will uh, be the next president right after that. I haven't heard that one in my classroom mm. yet, but uh, so, so let's, why don't we start by saying this? The Constitution does lay out the three criteria, uh, or, or I should say three things a president can engage in that could produce an impeachment, and it is treason, bribery, 
and then this more complicated one, high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, one might think that impeachment takes place where there has been a statutory crime that has been committed given those three things. And it's perfectly clear from the founders and the longer history of impeachment that that is not true. So the British Parliament used impeachment to take crown officials out of their offices when they acted in ways that were inconsistent with the public interest or when they abused their power. And it's, I, I think everybody agrees, the same uh, sort of setting here, that one doesn't have to engage in a statutory criminal behavior to be impeached. Instead, and uh, Bill and I were talking a bit about Federalist mm -hmm. uh, papers and, and, and Hamilton, I pause here to say I'm a Madisonian, not a Hamiltonian. Uh, uh, I haven't seen that play yet. Yeah, well, uh, we would all be richer for a play on Madison. <laughs> Let me just say that. But, but, but Hamilton, who wrote pretty extensively on impeachment, was very clear that it's political in nature, not necessarily criminal, that it protects the public interest. But he was absolutely clear that it would be very polarizing. And that it could turn out to be the case that evidence was less important than politics, which is sort of where he ended on impeachment. So procedurally, the House votes articles of impeachment, and they do so by a simple majority. If those articles of impeachment pass through the House, a trial is held in the Senate. The Senate is the jury, and they have to have two-thirds uh, of the Senate vote to convict in an impeachment. Uh, to remove the president from office. So the first big thing we all say is, or we need to say is, impeachment doesn't remove the president. An impeachment is like an indictment. It's a charge. And what it does is moves the president uh, to trial. There are no set rules. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a thing I've been talking a lot about with my classes. Um, the House has a group of uh, people who will be called managers they present the case against the president on the basis of the articles of impeachment they have voted to the Senate. The president is entitled to a defense team uh, of, of lawyers. But the question of how long the trial goes, who testifies, how many of them testify, what evidence is uh, admitted, we don't even know what the burden of proof is. Mm -hmm. And of course, for a lawyer, the burden of proof is everything. Mm -hmm. you know, is it beyond a reasonable doubt, as it would be in a criminal case? Is it a preponderance of the evidence as it would be in a civil case? We don't know. Um, and, in, and in this odd case, the jury actually sets the rules because the likelihood is, and this is what's happened in the past, that the Senate would be the one setting the rules for an impeachment. Um, so a couple of interesting questions to start. One possibility is the Senate could vote to dismiss the case before they ever hear evidence. And uh, it's not impossible to imagine that happening. Mm -hmm. We might toss that around for a minute. The second is, is Bill's question. Could the, uh, uh, the president not participate? But let's have a corollary of it. Could Mitch McConnell refuse to try the case? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the answer is no, but we could, we could talk to that question. And the last is, and here's a really interesting procedural one uh, that people probably don't know. It is not outside the realm of possibility that a president impeached and convicted could be reelected right. and therefore be president immediately thereafter. God, I'd love that. So why don't I just, why don't I just stop there with a couple of those morsels and, and see if that's enough background on impeachment to, to get a conversation going. You know, Mitch McConnell has come out and said that he thinks there should be some form of hearing, but he hasn't said at all mm -hmm. what that would look like. 
and 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 I think we would we we might want to look back to Clinton and Nixon, not Nixon, Clinton and uh, Johnson, Johnson Johnson for models. But you know, the, I don't know if that's even helpful because I remember when Clinton was impeached. There was a whole political process and debate about what this should look like. Was it fair? Was it not fair? This could get really, really, really messy. Mm-hmm. McConnell has, I mean, he has come out and said that he would hold it or he thinks that they have to hold a trial, but he's also come out and said that he wants to do it quickly. So he, he's pointed to the Clinton uh, trial, which lasted, which was a, a fairly long process, the pres- you know, presentation of evidence and all sorts of other stuff. McConnell has, uh, my impression or my understanding is, has made it clear that he wants to move quickly if it if it gets to that. Now, I, you know, as you've said, Tom, this is this is it feels like a legal process, and it it is to some extent a different type of legal process, but mostly it's political. And I think McConnell, I I, I have to imagine that McConnell just doesn't want that to fall in his like he doesn't want to have to deal with this. So I think he's saying now he would do it quickly, but again. You know, surveys continue to come out. Polls continue to come out to show that public opinion is swinging uh, more in favor of impeachment. In fact, there were polls out today that that have 50 percent of Americans not just in favor of impeachment, but in favor of impeachment and removal from office. Those numbers are, are those are crazy high. That's what that's what Nixon was at when he resigned. Uh, and that's where the politics comes into it. And that I think McConnell uh, you know, if, if it had, ha- if this trial had happened a week ago, I think he would have done it quickly. If public opinion continues to move in the other direction, it's going to become in his, to his advantage to actually, or it's going to be harder for him to sort of dismiss it if the public is behind it. Um, and that's where I, I, I think that's where it's hard to predict. Like, you know, if this doesn't get to the Senate for another, uh, you know, two or three months, who knows where, where the public will be at that point. And if the public is, you know, all on board and, and, and has turned on Trump, then it makes it hard for McConnell to do that. If, if people are already tired of it, then McConnell can very easily do this political thing where he dismisses it and moves on, I think. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of interesting because a lot of the lessons that people were drawing from the Clinton impeachment was that this is b- going to be bad for Democrats, that, you know, it's it's not going to be good to bring up, that it's going to bite them in the butt. That, and, and it appears that it's it's not so clear. Now, the political winds may shift one way or the other, but this feels like the longer this has played out over the last few weeks, this hasn't been good for, for Trump. And, and I don't think it's good for Republicans either to have this be the news every single day. I mean, you figure the more that you're digging and learning about Trump, the, the more that it's, it's going to be bad for the party. Well, his behavior is not helping the situation either. Right. It's oh, been absolutely oh bizarre. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, I, I think if he would just, and again, we, we talk about it all the time, if he would just kind of stay out of the fray, this would be a different conversation that we're having. But if you remember the Clinton impeachment, they Clinton had a legal team. I mean, right. he, I mean, it sounds like when that was happening, nothing else happened in the White House. There was no, you know, nobody was doing anything other than that. And this legal team was dealing every day, PR issues, legal issues. At this point, it's just Trump, right? I mean, I don't think he's he's pulled anybody in. People are refusing to be pulled. In. Right. I mean, other than Rudy. He's got, which, right. he's got Rudy. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> well, White House counsel, I think, drafted the eight page letter that went to Nancy Pelosi. Yes. Uh, now, that's different than Trump's personal legal team. And presumably the president would bring his own lawyers, mm-hmm. not White House counsel or obviously not the attorney general or somebody who is a political appointee. Um, I one fascinating dimension of this beyond the, the ones we've mentioned is the role of the chief justice mm-hmm. who will preside over the trial and who may have to make some judgments about not just the how long, how many, who, and that sort of thing, 
But here's a place where the chief justice is drawn directly into the political fray. And I, I know one of the refrains we've, we've had, at least I've had around here, is that John Roberts has tried so hard to keep the court from being uh, politicized or pulled into the everyday politics of America, which right now are really ugly. This would inevitably draw him in and individually draw him in as a trial court mm-hmm. judge. It's not all nine of them up there. It's just him. And boy, uh, you want to talk about the hardest job in America? It will be to preside over an impeachment trial Mm -hmm. uh, as a Supreme Court justice, wanting to preserve that, to use your wonderful word, institution, which I very much agree with, uh, and and to try and thread the needle between the two parties and the, the, the sort of American populations that follow each of them. And, and the perception that the court has been politicized, right? I and mean, he's yeah. got to fight that because now yeah. suddenly he's going to be front and center. Yeah. So can I ask a question based on on that? You you had said, you know, it, uh, in your kind of lead up to this, you, you talked about how there's just not much uh, out there about how this should play out. And, and a lot of the issues in general uh, about, you know, separation of powers, we have these kind of broad ideas that are laid out in the Constitution, but we haven't had to... Uh, kind of flesh those out in the past because there haven't been many times that this has come up. And so if you're John Roberts and you're presiding over an impeachment trial, or if you're the any of the justices of the Supreme Court and one of these issues comes to you about you know, executive privilege or about, you know, subpoena, whether the subpoena should be upheld, you know, to, to force somebody to testify. Um, if there were a clear, it seems like if there were a clear case history or a clear, you know, there were clear laws, then you could avoid some of the politics by falling back on that. What does the court fall back on? Like if you're the if you're the Supreme Court and one of these issues comes up and there's just, I mean, the way people think of the Supreme Court is there's this issue that comes up. We look at the laws on the books and we interpret them. When there's not really thing anything on the books, there's just this general concept. What do you turn to? How do they interpret? How do they make decisions? What? How do you even do that in this situation? Does that make sense? That's yeah, a great question. It it, it, it makes a, a ton of sense. The, the first thing I'd say is that John Roberts won't unilaterally rule on things like executive privilege or attorney-client privilege. It seems to me those will move through the federal appellate courts and then maybe to the entire Supreme Court. Um, how they do that quickly enough to accommodate what would be roughly speaking an 18-month process if it took as long as, uh, you know, till next inauguration day, basically, I don't know. What John Roberts would rule on unilaterally are the things that take place during the trial itself. And theoretically, and this is sort of the, the dovetail fill to your question, uh, what, what lawyers would recognize as things called motions in limine. These are those motions that precede a trial on questions like what evidence is, is, uh, is admissible? which witnesses will be permitted to testify? Um, Are there witnesses that will not be permitted to testify? Are there things the lawyers can't say to the jury? Those Mm -hmm. sorts of things. So he's got to be a trial court judge relative to what happens in the Senate, and he's got to be an appellate court judge relative, relative to what happens in the Supreme Court. The second and maybe more direct answer is that I suspect that he would default to existing criminal law due process expectations. That is that uh, one has a right to confront one's accusers. One has a right to exculpatory evidence if there is uh, any in a case like this. That there's a right to direct and and cross-examination. And I suspect, knowing who he is, not personally, but I mean watching his his career, 
that he'd probably err in favor of more rather than less and let the Senate hear everything rather than a truncated version of it. I guess the last thing to say on that question is Mitch McConnell has a role in this too. And of course, the Constitution is completely silent on who is more powerful, uh, the leader of the Senate, that's the foreperson of the jury for all practical intents and purposes, or the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who's the trial court impeachment judge. So I'm, I'm trying to imagine what it looks like when Mitch McConnell and, and John Roberts are across the table from one another. I don't know. what to, Is it negotiating how many witnesses? Is it John Roberts saying, I'm ruling that it's this many witnesses? Is it Mitch McConnell saying, you're in my house, you do what I say? Sure. We don't know. Is it's it a bad is idea. It, I feel like we should just nix the whole thing. <laughs> I was actually going to ask that. So, <laughs> yeah. I, in, in, in a less uh, cynical <laughs> sort of way. I, is this a, <laughs> my question to you, Tom, about your beloved constitution is that, is this a flaw? Is it to, to make the, the Supreme, the chief justice of the Supreme Court play this role, have to play basically this uh, mediator while also, you know, playing the the Supreme Court role, the appellate role. Is is that, a, I mean, sh- would we be better off to say this is fully a Senate thing? The Senate basically sets the rules. They decide it. They get to decide who presides over it. Phil, my excellent friend, I feel like we've been over this before. <laughs> there are no flaws in my beloved constitution, nor are there in my beloved Supreme Court. <laughs> um, no, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Uh, the framers left lots of things ambiguous. And I think not because they didn't think of them, but because they thought here was one of the ways to make sure that there was room to interpret consistent with cultural, you know, we're going to talk about uh, a case where cultural mores have changed. And and do we rewrite the law consistent with those later? Um, I, I, I guess I think I'd say it's not a flaw. Uh, it involves all three branches in a process that is uh, arguably the most important one in American life. And it would be, it feels odd to me for the Senate, for example, to be able to appoint a judge, uh, for the Supreme Court even to be able to appoint a judge. We've made him the chief justice, not just of the Supreme Court, but of the federal court system. And he's a capable, smart mm-hmm. um, a, a person who I think can do this job well. It won't be easy. But I, I don't know what the alternative would be. Yeah. I don't know if there'd be a better alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one hopes that the Supreme Court, at least, emerges from this looking better rather than worse. You talked about that if Roberts were to, if and when Roberts assumes this role, that he would be more likely to have be more inclusive information. What about if we flip to the House side? So the, the Trump administration has said they don't want information in, right? They, they basically, they're saying, if you want to move forward, you've got to first vote for impeachment and then we'll start sharing information. How, how do you think this is going to play out if, if the white house executive branch says, no, we're not going to play ball. We're not going to let individuals testify. We're not going to do these subpoenas. I mean, they, they can do that mm-hmm. and it'll get flipped to the courts. It's a really interesting strategy to say that we think this is partisan in nature mm-hmm. uh, and we're not going to, we're not going to play your game. Yeah. Well, first Nancy Pelosi is right. Mm-hmm. There is not a constitutional obligation that there be a vote for an inquiry. And, and the president has said he won't, cooperate until there is a vote for an inquiry. Uh, He may or may not be right on that score, but the Constitution doesn't require the House to vote to investigate or inquire. It requires the House to vote articles of impeachment forward. 
and, and I think that's an important difference because if the president is saying, I won't cooperate until you vote to investigate me, mm-hmm. that's different than saying, I won't cooperate until I'm impeached mm-hmm. or I won't cooperate at all. I think he'd be yeah. wrong in all three scenarios. Uh, <laughs> but it's important to make those distinctions, this, isn't that, it? It, it? This is interesting. Yes. So if if the court if if the House decides not to vote for impeachment bef- before the trial before the inquiry, is it going to be more difficult for the House to get those documents? So so if they mm-hmm. if they vote yeah. formally to say we're going to vote for impeachment and then we're going to move this, does do the courts suddenly say this is of, of grave political concern? We're going to approve these subpoenas. Do you think that makes a difference one way or the other? The the formal vote versus just an inquiry. Uh, I, maybe, maybe in terms of, to use the political science word, the optics of it, it sure. does. As a legal matter, I don't think it does at all. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Congress issues subpoenas. And uh, let's just say this, a subpoena is a request. It, it is not a court order. Um, they're normally followed in, in civil and criminal law. But here, the second thing I was going to say to Phil's question is, I think the president should refuse to cooperate in terms of the production of documents and in terms of instructing people to testify, at least until uh, there is a ruling from a federal court that that he should do so, this is done all the time. And the you know you hear Amazon say, "We will not comply with the subpoena until a court tells us we have to." The idea is you don't want to produce a precedent that the executive privilege mm-hmm. or that mm-hmm. Congress's power to subpoena is greater than it really well. Either one of those is greater mm-hmm. than it than it really should be. Um, I have a suspicion that the, the Supreme Court will ultimately say that there are a number of the things that have been requested by Congress to which they are entitled. Uh, and, and I think it will be narrower than what they have asked for. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've subpoenaed. Uh, you, you can't count the number of pieces of paper from Department of Defense, Office of Management and Budget. They're calling witnesses that may or may not have anything to do with this. This isn't uncommon in, in, in legal practice, but I, I think the court would say, um, Congress has been given the power to vote articles and they've been given the power to try. So they should be given the information to do both of those in appropriate ways. And it would likely take the Supreme Court weighing in before the Trump administration would hand those documents over. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, I, I, without taking a position on whether we should convict sure. or, or I think the answer is it should. It would be terrific the next time this happens to know the answer to the question. Yep. So that we're not sitting around here saying there aren't any rules. We don't know who has power to do what. Congress can, you know, they can hold a person in contempt, but they don't have any enforcement rights. And in fact, oddly enough, the only way they could enforce is if the U.S. attorney uh, tried to pursue a claim for criminal contempt against the person. But remember, the U.S. attorney works for the attorney general who works for the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the likelihood of that happening is, is just about zero. Um, you know, the constitutional crisis crowd is out now. And, and it seems to me that this is not yet in any way, shape, or form a constitution. Here's when it would be if the Supreme Court ordered the production of documents and the president declined. Mm-hmm. That's a constitutional crisis. I'm, the definition of which it seems to me is the branches don't respect one another. Uh, and, and I don't think we're at that point yet. Mm-hmm. So what, what's the path forward? I, I mean, on a related question. So, so let's say what is, it's pretty clear that that's the, 
what's going to happen, right? The letter from the White House basically says we're not going to cooperate. That, this has been their approach for a long time. Uh, you know, this was, you know, Sondland showed up, flew all the way back from Europe, was prepared to testify, and the the, the State Department tells him not to. Um, it's not just the Ukraine situation. I mean, going back months, this has been kind of the Trump approach. So it seems like impeachment inquiry or impeachment hearings don't last for 18 months. They happen pretty quickly. Um, and so what what happens moving forward? So let's say the, the House does, you know, they've subpoenaed documents. The Trump administration has said we're not going to comply. So it goes to the courts. Is there a fast track? I mean, this this is going to end up at the Supreme Court. Are there how does it how quickly will it get there? How does that how does that play out? It's hard to answer the how quickly, but there is absolutely a, a fast track. Um, there are longstanding rules for making appeals either within the time a trial is taking place or, or prior to a trial, precisely for these reasons. That is, if you need an appellate court to weigh in on who should testify, what evidence should be admitted, you should be able to ask that question before you've tried the case and won or lost. So, uh, I, I think, again, you know, Phil, to go back to your earlier question, the court's likely to default to commonly applied rules in uh, criminal and civil law. Um, how quickly that can happen, uh, I think, is a little harder. So start with the question of whether or not it has to go through a federal trial court judge, then to a federal appeals court, then to the Supreme Court, or... Uh, does the Supreme Court see this as an extraordinary circumstance where they skip the other two? Mm -hmm. I suspect that's what they do uh, and make an immediate ruling on uh, uh, the facts. Yeah. In every other kind of context, of course, the Supreme Court wants a full record from a trial court, from a, a more than one appellate court generally, so that they can resolve conflicts, but that they can see what lower courts have done. Here, I think they can't do that. And, and I'd be shocked if the court it's especially because it's John Roberts here, would want to be seen as the tool that has been used to delay a process uh, that Congress wants to pursue. So I think it would be direct to the Supreme Court. I think they'd rule relatively quickly. And I'm going to give you some numbers on how uh, judges have aligned over the last year, because I think the instinct people are going to have is instantly that, you know, there's five to four conservative and the president's going to do great. I'm going to suggest a few numbers that, that, that may make you think in different ways about that. But I think it's straight to the Supreme Court. So could they try him uh, and, and have a verdict before uh, a vote? Yes. So that could move much more quickly than the Absolutely. normal legal process for Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Is that is that decided by – so whether or not it goes straight to the Supreme Court or goes through the process, is that decided by a vote of the Supreme Court? Do they, do they decide collectively to take a case like they do in others? It's the same basic process? They do. Yeah. So, so the phrase is, it's, it's called an interlocutory appeal. And the idea is that you're appealing an element of a legal process that's currently taking place. And you're doing it for the purpose of being sure that as it continues, it comports with due process and it provides the parties with a fair and reasonable hearing. So the court could say, and they, and they probably would if this was something other than impeachment, uh, we need a trial court and or an appellate court to rule on this before we do. But I suspect that the justices would say in this kind of context that time is of the essence. This is an extraordinary set of circumstances. And uh, our, our ruling should come not hastily, but but rapidly. Because the last mm -hmm. thing they want is this this dragging into an election season as well, right? right. That just more yeah. that complicates all of this. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do we want to say a word about the attorney-client privilege? I, I, yeah, I, I wish you go there. I, I, yeah. I'm just, I'm, I, the more I watch Rudy Giuliani, the more I think, wouldn't it be fun to be on the other side of a, a courtroom from him? Because bizarre and erratic as the president's behavior has been, uh, equally bizarre and erratic is his personal lawyer. Yeah. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be surprised by that. But I mean, this is this is the this is the mayor post 9/11. You know, at, at a point, one of the most popular people in America. And boy, uh, his behavior as to this has been a former federal prosecutor, a former too. federal, I mean, prosecutor a, a well-respected, doing yeah. things and saying things that are incomprehensibly stupid <laughs> relative to the legal process. Uh, I mean, putting his client at risk by not keeping his mouth shut. Mm-hmm. And and boy, the mark of a lawyer is to keep your mouth shut. It's not to be so on cable news every night. Yeah. What, <laughs> so give give some example. Like, what has he done that is that you see as in, as crazy? Having a press conference, <laughs> <laughs> tweeting, that, that would be up appearing there. on news shows. No, I mean, I'm I'm not being glib here. I, I, the answer ought to be, and I think what most lawyers would say is, I am not a public, uh, you know, publicity flack. I am the president's personal attorney. Talk to his spokesperson. Talk to his PR department. Mm-hmm. Talk to his media rep, because I represent him. And the temptation when you're in those sorts of settings to go too far, and uh, well, how go too far? How either violate the attorney-client privilege or engage in behavior that might waive it. You know, the attorney-client privilege is not absolute, and, and there's two different ways in which right now it might relevantly uh, be relevant. Uh, one of them is if even negligently the client waives the right by saying something that would otherwise be privileged, they open the door to the idea that the privilege is waived. If the client says something. If the client does. Trump's not going to do when, that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> So stable and and uh, reliable is his behavior. And all-knowing. Uh, yeah, well, right, his infinite wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I could imagine a scenario where Giuliani says something to the effect of, I've spoken at length with the president about this and. Uh, I, I have I've come to believe that Giuliani has stopped paying attention to, uh, as a primary responsibility, his role as personal attorney to the lawyer and has started seeing himself primarily as a public defender. I don't mean that in the mm-hmm. lawyer sense mm-hmm. of the word of the president. Here's the second. The attorney-client privilege does not protect a lawyer and does not exist where the lawyer is complicit in criminal behavior by the client. Now, uh, my view of this is that the president probably has not violated a federal statute and committed a crime. Uh, I, I think there are others who may differ on that, but I, I don't know what it would be. Mm-hmm. Quid pro quo in this context is not a federal crime. Mm. We're talking about a political process that's inimical to the interests of us, Mm -hmm. the public. Um, But, you know, theoretically, if one uh, develops a a theory that Giuliani has facilitated or participated in criminal behavior with Donald Trump, there's no attorney-client privilege to protect that. So I think, I mean, I'll just go back. Giuliani should shut up. Mm -hmm. So let me ask another question that builds off of this, which is, uh, you know, one of the things that Giuliani has been doing on on nightly news or whatever is uh, the the instance I think of is he's gone on and, you know, he's shown text messages that the State Department has asked him to do this. So my question is, if that's the case, if he's acting on behalf of the State Department, that also, I, I I don't know, but that seems like that would also 
also uh, weaken the attorney-client privilege because he's not doing it as the president's lawyer. He's doing it as some sort of stand-in or a proxy for the State Department. And and so those yeah. sorts of communications and actions wouldn't be protected, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is what yeah. I was nibbling at the edges of. If a lawyer is going to reveal something on behalf of their client, they'd almost certainly do it with some preamble that says, uh, my client is prepared to release the following documents. They do not in any way waive the attorney-client privilege as to all other communications, written, oral, and otherwise between me and and, and my client. Um, and we admit no liability, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. Um, uh, releasing text messages, frankly, releasing the transcript of the telephone call, mm-hmm. releasing a lot of these things, I think at least raises the possibility that you're going to see an argument made that there isn't an attorney-client privilege because Rudy Giuliani and his client can't selectively decide when they're going to assert the privilege and when they're not as to documents that have a common theme. And and the president seems to like Giuliani to play multiple roles, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the the role of, uh, you know, he was basically the guy in charge of looking into Ukraine. That's distinct from an attorney role, right? I mean, that that drifts more into State Department behavior, uh, diplomacy. And it it seems like the courts are not going to be able to decide what's in and what's out. Yeah, this is is my point about being a media flack and and appearing on interviews and that sort of thing. Uh, You can't represent more than one client. Mm -hmm in an action. And I find myself thinking that as he's talking on behalf of the State Department and, I don't know, the military, the Department of Defense, they are not Donald Trump. He is not the attorney general. He's the personal attorney of a particular human being who happens to be the president. And I think he's exceeding the boundaries of what a responsible attorney in those contexts would, in that context would do. So when, when he's uh, so I, I have two questions. One of I mean, one the other aspect of this I think is that as the attorney of the president, he's also not an executive branch employee. So the executive privilege aspect right. is also in question. It seems like which is where Rudy seems maybe maybe doubly screwed in that he, he he's not protected by attorney client anymore, but also not by executive privilege. The other part is like, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> and, and, and I know that you can't put yourself in, you don't know what's going on in his head, but when he's up there talking about the state department told me to do this, is, is he just trying to cover his own ass? I mean, is that what he's, is there, a, is there any legal strategy that would look like this? <laughs> Maybe I'll answer that. I'm going to talk to the first thing first because okay. I got to think about the question. Um, asserting the executive privilege would be a thing that is within the responsibility of the personal attorney, at least as a spokesperson for the president. Um, I mean, again, this, this executive privilege is not a thing that's present in the Constitution, though we should say every president, including George Washington, has at one point or another asserted it. And, and many in ways that sound eerily similar to Mm -hmm. Donald Trump. You might remember Eisenhower once said, any man who testifies against me won't be working for me tonight. (laughs) So uh, this is during the McCarthy hearings. And uh, so so presidents have been pretty aggressive about this. Um, it, it, It is not inappropriate for the personal, at least I don't think that it is, for the personal attorney of the president to voice the executive privilege as to some of these documents and the attorney-client privilege as to other communications with him. I think the attorney general ultimately has to be involved in the question of what is covered by the executive privilege. 
though the attorney general would have nothing, I think, to do with the attorney-client privilege. Mm -hmm. Is there a strategy? I, I, I guess I have to tell you, I don't know what it would be. I, you know, we listened, Bill and I were talking earlier about, this is totally off topic, but Trump and the Kurds. It feels like things happen spontaneously, without reflection, and without strategy. In fact, I think one of the complaints that's so often made about Trump is that there isn't an overarching foreign policy. There isn't an overarching domestic policy. There aren't even uh, healthcare or immigration policies that you can nail down. I, I think that they've got a lot of comparable personalities with very loose tongues um, and big egos uh, that see this as a sort of a fist fight with Congress. Which mm -hmm. in some ways makes Rudy going to lose. Right. The Rudy's the perfect lawyer for somebody like Trump, which is disastrous. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Phil, you've had a list of who you think is going to jail, and you said right. Rudy has moved to the top of your list <laughs> of people who are putting wow. themselves in legal liability. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I'm not saying I think the privileges have been waived. Yeah. I'm saying that I think there's now a colorable argument that they could have been. Have, okay. Uh, I, I didn't so mean to cut there. you off. Yeah. I, I mean, I, no, I, no. Has, the, has the Supreme Court ever ruled on executive privilege? I mean, you were saying it's not a constitutional thing. Uh, it's that That's an example of something where I think, uh, how does the court rule when there's not necessarily a law that says this is the case? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to complain again later, as I do every time I'm here about Congress not doing its job. This isn't really a place where Congress is going to write, I, it seems to me, a statute that defines executive privilege. Um, so I, I think the answer there is going to be to look at, uh, A, things they've said about uh, the privilege relative, let's say, to judicial impeachments, B, the ways it's been asserted over American history, and C, the ways other privileges work to protect important information. So I think everybody agrees that the executive privilege has two components. The president is always entitled to shield information um, that is in the national security interest. So if the Congress asked him for a list of, I don't know, spies or something like that, uh, everybody would agree you'd, ex you'd assert the executive privilege. I'm not going to produce that list of names because to do so would put them at risk. And the second is to assert that some information is private and that it is so in the public interest. And here's where presidents have more often fallen. And the idea is that if people can't talk candidly to the president, let's say cabinet secretaries or, or that sort of thing in the Oval Office, just exactly like not being able to talk candidly with your lawyer mm -hmm. under the attorney-client privilege. So I think the analog is going to be the attorney-client privilege. And I suspect the Supreme Court would use that as a way of measuring uh, what is covered and what isn't. But again, boy, uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, wow, really interesting. We should probably we wrap should, up. Yeah. Final thoughts on this? No, you're no, good. No, this is good. No, this it's is really one good. One thing. So today, Trump was talking about the whistleblower, and I, we can't go into this in detail, but Trump went out and publicly stated that, the, stated that the whistleblower should be, quote, exposed and questioned. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's legal, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, that strikes I feel me like that, the answer to so many questions is just to sort of laugh and say, what in the world? Right. And I, I feel like nobody, and I get why Phil and I, we were texting about this. I get why the Democrats aren't bringing this up, but I feel like the media or, or more people should be talking about whistleblower laws are real things 
they're in there for real reasons to, to hold government accountable. Including shielding the whistleblower <laughs> yeah. from being exposed <laughs> and ruined. So, you know, when you're top, you know, when the president is saying he should be exposed and questioned, I, I think that, yeah, this is uh, troubling at all levels. The media has a lot on their plate. Right I know, they're busy. So <laughs> Norms. All right, we should, we should norm. norms. <laughs> Let's talk to get here. Phil, Phil, you look like. Yeah, you're, you're drinking a uh, good-looking beer over there. Yeah, so I'm I'm having a uh, beer from um, this is from 603, which is the the New Hampshire uh, area code. So this is a, a brewery here in New Hampshire, and this is their Call Me Dragon Double IPA. Um, and it's a I guess a series of I don't it's a it's a special it's a, a limited series of beers I guess. Um, uh, I, I really liked this. Um, it was not, you know, it, 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 had the, all the kind of elements of a, what I think of as an IPA or a double IPA. Um, but whereas a lot of times the double IPAs, the hoppiness is kind of in your face and the fruitiness is in the background. This was almost kind of the opposite of that. It was just really the, the kind of fruitiness was the flavor in the front and the hoppiness was less so. Um, I, yeah, with the first couple of sips, I wasn't real sure. And as I drank more of it, I, I really like this. I would, I would definitely have another one of these. In in the New England area, do they have any other kind of beers than Not IPAs really. or double IPAs? No, no <laughs> okay. that's pretty much it. I, I just want to pause after that beer review from Phil, who almost always says, it's really good, I'd have another, or it's not very good and I'm not going to have another, to fruity mm-hmm. and first that and then a hoppy bitter finish. He's like a Cicerone. Yes. It's taken me like four years of doing this, but I'm finally starting to figure out beers. Yes. Yes. Oh, Nick, Nick, what are we enjoying? Mm. So we had a, uh, a moon money, double dry hopped IPA from transient. Mm. Um, one that, uh, Tom brought and Tom always brings us the best beers. Um, this is really, really, mm. really, really good. Um, I just, I love the way that these look and I don't know if it's the specific type, but it has this really kind of creamy texture to it. Just very kind of smooth. Um, it has the bite, but it's it's not overpowering in any way. Um, I really, really liked it. Yeah, <laughs> it's really good. Mm-hmm. Transient's terrific. I, I, I'm told that moon money is what the president pays Rudy Giuliani in <laughs> for his legal counsel. He's, so he's getting what he's paying for. <laughs> Uh, you know, a, a good beer doesn't hit you over the head, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm, some right. IPAs and double IPAs that just sort of. So this is an artisanal ale. What is that? How would where would we categorize that? Well, I, the the hit you over the head was a West Coast thing. So yeah. the West Coast IPAs were were these super bitter, super hoppy, uh, you know, lots of grapefruit and and tartness, yeah. and that's and and they're not popular anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So people have moved away from that. And, and a lot of these beers have a little bit more malt, so they wind up with that smoother mouthfeel that, that Nick is talking about. Um, I don't know. Artisan's the yeah. most overused word in America. <laughs> um, it's a small batch yeah. with fresh hops uh, in the can right out of the fermenter. So you're getting, you know, imagine you, you've all had orange juice that was bottled yesterday versus the mm-hmm. stuff that you get in those Costco cases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same Sooner exact thing with the hops. You know, they're when they're fresh, they're great. Don't be knocking Costco. So the second beer we tried was uh, from Tangled Roots. Uh, it was their Oktoberfest. And I, I'm going to keep trying Oktoberfest until Nick likes one. You can keep trying, man. <laughs> Especially after that first one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's how I... This was... 
and I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I keep thinking I should like Oktoberfest, but just the style. The, know, the, there's not a lot of distinction yeah. between them, I yeah. feel like, and I have yet to find one that really kind of sets itself apart. Um, they just all kind of have that same flavor palette. I want more like of a little bit of a red flavor to it or mm. something more ambery. It's just, I don't know. This is going to come as a shock, Nick, but a style should help taste the same. <laughs> I don't know if it is an Oktoberfest. If you want to get real, Oktoberfest, get ready for it. If you want to get real like technical Oktoberfest. about this, that's fine. <laughs> I'm going to put a highly technical <laughs> qualification here. <laughs> Styles should taste like the style. Fine. Apparently I'm the asshole in this situation. <laughs> Hmm. Oh God. Um. A- anyways, on that note, uh, if you guys, I only get here once a month, so I got it the whole nine yards, man. <laughs> oh God. Uh, well, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, you can find us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, look for Barstool Politics on there, and you will find all of our reviews. So for us, we're not going to do speed round today. We're just going to dive into the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, the court kicked off what is likely to be an extraordinary consequential term. On Tuesday, the court appeared closely divided after hearing two hours of arguments on one of the most controversial issues of the term, whether existing federal law forbids job discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. The court will also hear a case on a Louisiana law that requires abortion providers to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital, a case nearly identical to the Texas bill that the Supreme Court struck down just three years ago as constituting an undue burden on abortion. And the New York gun case will move forward after the justices denied uh, New York City's bid to dismiss the challenge, setting the stage for the Supreme Court's first ruling on the Second Amendment in nearly a decade. Really, really interesting stuff. Uh, and this is just, it's really exciting. So Tom, gay rights, guns, abortion, uh, the term is packed with these blockbuster cases. Where do you want to start? With a couple numbers, but, but first let's say that last year the court was cautious. Uh, you'll remember how I cried on the podcast about the gerrymandering decision. (laughs) Still distraught. Uh, They they punted on the census decision. Um, and I, my sense is that that was John Roberts trying to control the narrative about the court after the contentious Kavanaugh hearings. They can't do that this year. So it is going to be, it feels to me like, and I think most Supreme Court watchers would say this, a really blockbuster kind of year. But, but I I thought a couple numbers because, you know, the sort of this court is, is deeply conservative and five, four, and that's how all these things are going to go. I just thought to to throw a couple at you. Last year, there were 67 decisions. Uh, Gorsuch joined the most dissents in the year. Kavanaugh joined the most majorities in the year. Kavanaugh and Gorsuch disagreed with one another more than any other two justices appointed by the same president in more than 50 years. That's really interesting. In those 67 decisions, the Ginsburg four, uh, the, the left end of the court, agreed 51 out of the 67 times. For those of you not doing statistics, that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) The Republican appointees only agreed 37 times, Mm. which is to say if there's a worry about lockstep voting, it is not the Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Alito, Mm -hmm. Thomas side. Well, throw Roberts in there, side of the court. It's the other one. Mm -hmm. What kind of question about that? Should I wait? No, throw it at me now. (laughs) Well, I'm just, I'm I'm wondering. No, I'm going to do, let me put one more number. Yeah, yeah, please (laughs) do, please do. (laughs) In the five to four decisions, the Ginsburg four uh, were virtually always either in the five together or the four together. And 
the others, only six of the 20. Hmm. So uh, I just, one of the things I, I worry as much as John Roberts does about the credibility of this institution. And the truth of the matter is, it is not a conservative court. They do not vote lockstep, at least the conservatives don't. And if people are worried about lockstep voting, what they ought to ask themselves is, why are all of these Democratic appointees incapable of crossing the line? Because it turns out they very rarely do. What I'm wondering is, historically, if we went back and looked at conservative and liberal courts, the, whether the minority ideology voted more aligned than the majority did. So like if you had a mm-hmm. if you had a liberal court, did the conservatives b- vote together? And I know that's not something you can know offhand, but yeah, know. would that be the case? Would, you know, if it was a liberal court, did the conservatives stick together uh in a to a greater percentage than they would in if you're it's in the majority? I, and I don't know the yeah. answer, but I will when I come back okay. at the end of October. <laughs> no, it's a terrific question because you could imagine that they feel some obligation right. to yeah. be the, the loyal opposition kind of thing. I hope that's not the case for either side, but I could imagine even if they haven't decided to do it, you know, kind of like the squad, right, right, uh, that, that maybe they do. Um, but I'm, I'm going to I'm mm-hmm. going to check that before okay. I come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So four last quick things: the Supreme Court did something it has never done in its entire history, and it is to institute a two minute light, so that now I think you know that when you say "May it please the court," somebody can jump in right away. Well, they've decided in the interest of decorum and allowing lawyers to make their case that they get two minutes before they get interrupted. Interesting. And there's now a great new podium with a white light. Oh. And the white light goes on when two minutes are over. So that's one. Two, day one of this term was uh, Justice Breyer's 25th anniversary, and John Roberts wished him many more years to come, which he only does up to 25 years. <laughs> the 30-year people just are simply wished uh, a great welcome, and it's been great being a colleague. <laughs> so I, I, maybe there's a signal there. Third, I have a crush on Gorsuch, who has become the libertarian on the court, and I just want that said out loud. <laughs> and last, Monday, they denied a thousand cert petitions in one day. Wow. They only heard 67 cases last year, and they denied a thousand petitions on one day. Now, that's not surprising. You know, they have a cert pool where the clerks are reading these things, but. I, I think listeners should know that they get tens of thousands of requests a year, and they whittle that down to, in round number, 70 or 80 a year over the last decade or so. Wow. They do not hear a lot of cases. That's really something. And this could be a smaller docket still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where do you want to start? I, I'd, I'd like to start on guns and abortion. Let's go there. <laughs> because I, well, the reason I want to start there is I think these two things are yoked, and I'm kind of anxious to hear how all of you think about this. So just very quickly... Uh, the gun case stems from, uh, let's go back a decade, to Heller and McDonald, in which the court held that there is an individual right to own a firearm in the United States, irrespective of your membership in a militia or anything else. So they overturned a D.C. and then comparable Chicago and Oak Park, Illinois statutes, or I should say ordinances, that essentially said you can't own a gun here, or if you do, you can't own it in a way that's meaningful. So what, what I mean by that is Heller... Uh, uh, was a security guard, no criminal record, absolutely valid ID, the whole nine yards. But in Washington, D.C., your gun had to be unloaded, trigger locked, and kept in a safe. And Heller said, well, the reason you might own a gun, particularly in Washington, D.C., is self-defense. And you've essentially eliminated my right to gun ownership by making it the case that I can't use it in a way that's meaningful. 
And the court ruled that he was right, that, that not only does he have a right to own one, but he has a right to own one in a meaningful way. So the instant response from uh, many cities and states was to figure out as many ways as they possibly could to make it really hard to do the thing Heller had just been told he could do. So separate licensing for the city and the state, really expensive and long training courses, um, frequent registration every time you buy new uh, ammunition or something like that. And in New York, and that's the case that gets to the court, you can't transport your gun outside the city. Mm -hmm. I just want you to stop and reflect on that for a minute. Let's start by asking what happens if you buy it outside the city and (laughs) want to bring it home. But once you've gotten it home, you can effectively never leave home with it unless you're going somewhere in the city. Well, there is nowhere in the city to go. Mm-hmm. If you want to find a gun range, you've got to leave the city, but you can't leave the city with your gun. So this case uh, uh, raises the question of, to what degree can you burden a constitutional right and make it impossible to exercise it? Mm-hmm. Curiously enough, New York repealed that ordinance And to go back to the point you made earlier, then made the argument that this case is moot because they've repealed the uh, the ordinance. Uh, And the court rejected that. Uh, I think partly because they knew New York was playing games with them, and partly because I think they want to get to the question of the undue burden on a constitutional right. So let me throw abortion in. That's what I was going to think they're different. Exactly. No, I I use the phrase undue burden burden. for a very good reason. And that is that there's a there's an uh, almost parallel path to the Supreme Court for these abortion cases. Roe and Planned Parenthood versus Casey establish a constitutional right. It's a penumbral right to use the word, not a Second Amendment right to an abortion. What did states do and what have they done very aggressively in the last couple of years? Limit the right. You have to have an ultrasound. It has to be done by a licensed physician. Both of those two things, I'll tell you, federal courts have said are fine. It has to be done in a place that has a surgical hospital license, not fine. In other words, they've done to abortion what cities and states have done to guns. Mm -hmm. So along comes Louisiana, and they say you can't have an abortion at a place that doesn't have doctors with admitting privileges at hospitals. An admitting privilege allows a doctor to treat you in the hospital. I mean, if you show up at the hospital and you're in an emergency, they will take you. Your doctor can't treat you there without admitting privileges. Texas made this case a handful of years ago, and they said that this was in the interest of the health of of the patients. The court rejected it, but the court has new members. Right. Anthony Kennedy's gone. Yeah. Anthony Kennedy's gone since the case. But here's the part of these two cases that's the most interesting to me. It's hard to hold in your head that one can win and one can lose. That is, both of them are about the degree to which you can encumber a constitutional right. And frankly, I think there's, it's not unreasonable to say that a Second Amendment right that appears on the face of the Constitution is different than sort of the penumbral right that created abortion. But mm-hmm. even if that's not true, the court's going to have to decide these cases at two levels. The practical one, can you require admitting privileges? And can you tell somebody they can't put their gun in their car? But at a philosophical level, they're going to have to decide to what degree and and how can we set a standard for an undue burden? Mm -hmm. That's a big one Mm. because it's going to put people uh, squarely on two horns of a dilemma because those 
who want no undue burden on abortion tend politically to be the ones who are perfectly happy to burden gun owners. Mm-hmm. God, that's interesting. And the other is exactly true. Now, I don't mean, I don't want to draw a total analogy here, but it'd be great if the court gave us a standard. Here's the degree to which we're going to let cities, counties, and states tell us how people will exercise their constitutional rights. Sure. Phil, I'll defer to you. I got questions, but I know <laughs> you like <laughs> no, to jump I mean, in. I, so, I mean, my, my, my thought, uh, just two quick comments on it. So uh, how confident are you that the court will rule in a similar direction on both of them? Um, and then the other question, we've talked about the idea of like you've you've hoped for the court to establish some sort of standard on on other issues in the past. And it feels like recently the court has been reluctant to do that. Um, do you do you see that changing at all uh, in this situation, especially since there are two prominent cases that deal with this issue before the court now? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. I, I have a feeling that this year is going to feel very different than last, and that they may establish these big ticket, broad principles, because they've taken a lot of cases they didn't have to. They could have said the New York case was moot, uh, and they could have just simply moved on and done nothing about it. But that suggests that at least four of the justices are saying, no, 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 mm-hmm. we want at least a voice on the question of this undue burden. They probably could have avoided the Louisiana abortion case if they wanted to and waited for, say, a consensus from the laboratory of states, but they didn't. And I find myself wondering if John Roberts hasn't said, all right, we got through a year with Kavanaugh. It turns out that the conservative bloc isn't the one voting in lockstep. Uh, let's forget the, you know, he's tainted by other things. And now it's time to take on some of these hard questions. We can't keep punting down the road on abortion. States everywhere, whatever your position on abortion, states everywhere are doing all sorts of things to nibble at the edges of what is, at this stage, a constitutional right. Um, Guns may not be a thing where there is as active an effort to do that, but I think they have to decide these cases. Uh, We're going to talk about the Title VII cases, again, where they took on things they may not have had to, they're going to have enormous implications in the workplace and in American culture, not, I think, to yeah. punt on them. Does the court ever reference I, – I, I don't know enough about it. Is there any precedent for the court referencing – is there any way in which the court comes down with some new standard and then applies it to two different cases? Is it possible they reference one of the – you know, one decision in, in how they decide the other? Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to do a quick inventory in my head. Um, I think what they'd worry about is not using language in one that is harmful to the finding, or I should say the holding in another. I'd be surprised if they would cite two contemporaneous decisions relative to one another. I'm trying to think of a time when they've done that. And I, there may be one, and I'm not, I'm not thinking about it. But I could imagine one of the justices in an opinion saying, we're confronted with a similar question in two cases. How do we regulate state, county, and local infringements on or limitations to constitutional rights? So I'm thinking here, for example, about discrimination law, where they have levels of scrutiny, right? So there's strict scrutiny for race cases. If you want to, and which is why it's almost never possible to win a race discrimination case. You have uh, uh, medium scrutiny and you have um, lower levels of scrutiny. And the idea is that they tell you, here's how hard essentially we are going to measure what you're doing. 
So it feels to me like they could do a comparable thing in these. Anytime a state endeavors to limit access to abortion or access to a gun, we are going to employ a strict scrutiny approach. That is, the burden lies with government to show that there's a compelling government a purpose in doing so. Now, it might turn out that the, the rulings are, you know, there is for guns and there's not for abortion or vice versa. But what they don't have is clarity about what level of scrutiny or, or the degree to which they're going to look hard at these cases. And that's what I'm hopeful sure. for. Mm-hmm. What I'm wondering about is, is the issue of precedent. So we talked about the, the Louisiana abortion law. It's very similar to the Texas law three years mm-hmm. ago. And you're, you're absolutely right. There's so many different laws that are nibbling at abortion. Why would the court pick this particular case other than it strikes me that there's, there's some message they want to send because they could have picked another, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about an undue burden. The court said, this is an undue burden. Why pick mm-hmm. that case again to say, let's revisit this question of an undue burden that we've already addressed three years ago is I, I'm wondering why they would do that. Yeah. Well, I, the easiest answer is that certain, petitions are granted with only four votes. Okay. And you've got two new votes on a different end of the court uh, who have not yet had a chance and hadn't at the mm-hmm. uh, Texas case uh, date to weigh in on this. Um, so I, I, one suspects that the, the easy answer, here's yeah. Occam's yeah. razor. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the simplest answer is the right answer. It's a different four votes. Sure. And, and the constituency of the court has changed. So they now want to weigh in on this one. Want to hear it. Does that does that suggest that the they'll rule differently? Because um, why would, why would they take a case if they've already if if if, if Gorsuch and um, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh geez, uh, have already ruled that way? Or I, mean, I believe it's the right rightly decided. Mm-hmm. Why would they vote for it again? Mm-hmm. A couple of possible reasons. One is that they want to further explore why mm-hmm. that ruling was appropriate. Um, the Texas argument was that it advanced health, and the finding in Texas was that it didn't. Uh, so at a fact level, you could imagine the possibility. They say, well, Louisiana is different. I don't know if it is. Sure, I'm just right. I'm, I'm thinking out loud here that Louisiana is different. A second possibility is uh, that they do want to get to the broader standard kind of question. Is this going to be a strict scrutiny case? That doesn't mean mm-hmm. that they say that Louisiana wins. It means they establish a standard for addressing all of mm-hmm. these different sorts of what about an ultrasound? So there was a, there was a case that comes from Virginia uh, where a federal judge took on four different, I just listed them a minute ago, the ultrasound, the surgical licensing and that sort of thing. Um, the Supreme Court reconciles circuit disagreement and it establishes standards when states are doing a wide variety of different things relative to fundamental rights. And I think it's the latter thing they're trying theoretically to do here. No, I don't know. At the end of the day, they could decide because they held out the possibility of doing it, that the New York case is in fact moot. Mm-hmm. So so the, the order to argue specifically says we reserve the right sure. to mm-hmm. say the case is moot on the grounds that you've repealed. Mm-hmm. And they could also say as to the abortion case, we did this in Texas, we're doing the same thing now. Sure. Um, but, but I could imagine that the, the other possibility is let's establish standards for adjudicating these kinds of claims so that federal trial and appellate court judges know what to do. Mm-hmm. We, should we should probably do the, yeah. We should talk about sex. Correct. Okay, let's move to sex. <laughs> Almost exclusively. <laughs> wow. 
That's the first time that's been said on the podcast. Let's talk about a good sex. joke, Bill. And, and Nick and Bill both point to me. Yeah, let's have that, that drum roll again. So uh, yesterday, there was oral argument in a trio of cases that all ask a, a comparable question relative to Title VII. Uh, and, and it's a really fascinating one. Does Title VII protect sexual orientation in the workplace is two of those cases. And does it protect gender identity uh, in the workplace? And that is the third of those cases. Here's another one where there's going to be a practical answer and a philosophical answer that I think people are going to be really interested in, uh, well, both of which. The practical answer is, can you fire a person for being gay? And can you fire a person for being transgender? The philosophical question is, what do you do when Congress has written a statute that is plain on its face, the meaning of which is unambiguous, and the legislative history for which utterly and completely supports the clear reading of the statute? That is, Title VII, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, protects sex and uh, color, religion, national origin. It was amended to include pregnancy. Sex meant then binary biological sex, and it was an effort to protect women in the workplace, uh, not necessarily to the exclusion of men, but at the time, there wasn't any conception that either of these two questions would arise. So the question is, should the court interpret the word sex to comport with our modern mores and sensibilities, or should it say this is Congress's responsibility. And if they want Title VII to protect something other than those things it said in 1964, tell us that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you can imagine that my position is the latter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Having called Congress flaccid, meaningless, inactive, and all sorts of other things yeah. on this podcast. You can keep going. <laughs> there's another place where Congress could solve the problem easily, mm-hmm. but where they're a fault, effectively defaulting to the court, whose role this isn't, mm-hmm. uh, whose role this isn't. Right. So, for for me, in this case, what I what I find so fascinating is Alito makes that argument. Right. Mm-hmm. He says this is up to Congress. Don't force the court to make these decisions. Mm-hmm. But your new favorite justice Gorsuch really says we need to look at the text. Like he's a textualist mm-hmm. about what sex means, mm-hmm. and and. It, from listening or reading about what he said, it, it's not clear which way he's going to vote on not this. At all. No. And he might he might rule that sex now is understand understood in a different way, and therefore it should be protected. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's it's possible that he would make that type of interpretation, which is really interesting to see that that interpretation of what did those who wrote the law mean versus what does the text itself say? Yeah. I'm not sure those two things are different. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the Alito Thomas position. And, and I think we should say that. But, but the second thing that Gorsuch said was he recognizes there would be, and I'm going to just use yes. his phrase, massive social upheaval. Uh, mm-hmm. if the Supreme Court reinterpret, I shouldn't say reinterprets title seven to include things that the, that its authors didn't even contemplate being on the American agenda. Yeah. Uh, so he's got, competing interests in his mind. Here. Absolutely. And he was talking more about like the bathroom issues. Like this is a big, big issue. Like the, the country as a whole would have to deal with. It's yeah. not just right. It has it's far reaching implications. Yeah, I, I, my understanding was that that argument that he was, or that comment that he made was in regards to the case regarding the transgender issue more than the, 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 right, the right. sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. I, there, the other part that my understanding of, of this again is that, uh, um, 
One of the arguments is that essentially sexual orientation is inseparable from the idea of sex, that essentially the idea is uh, if you discriminate, you know, essentially, so if you're a a gay man and and the idea is that you are uh, fired because you're attracted to men or you're married to a man, that is sexual discrimination because you wouldn't fire a woman for being attracted to or married to a man. So you're discriminating based on sex, right? So that that's part of the argument that the two are inseparable. I, I, I also, right, right. That, that's interesting to me because that's different from, again, the, the sort of strict 1964 definition of sex, but it's also an interesting yeah. and I think in some ways compelling argument. Um, and, and that would be if that, if you interpret it that way, that would apply to the, to the transgender situation as, as well. Right. And that, you know, if it's somebody who, um, that you're firing someone for behaving in a way that you know is inappropriate for their sex, right? It, it, which is which is in some way, you know, there there have been cases, right, where uh, where it's been ruled. My again, you would know this better than I. That uh, it's been it's discriminatory to make you know to require women to wear uh, you know a skirt or whatever uh, because it's you know that's gender discrimination um, or sex discrimination. And so the the same argument again would mm-hmm. be. Uh, the, the, if 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 a man is not behaving, so the argument there is a woman should have to behave like a woman, right? And that was what was overthrown by the court. Um, it's something similar. Yeah, this is Price Waterhouse. Right. It's a similar right. argument in terms of the the trans issue, right? And that this is a, you know a, a man should behave like a man, and that's why I'm going to fire them because they're not. I, that that starts to again expand the arguments. They they expand in a way that makes sense in some ways, but it seems like the court has to decide. How expansive is that interpretation? Um, yeah, I, I don't want to monopolize. Yeah, it. no, go ahead. I, my sense is they could decide the cases differently. That is, I think the case you make relative to the first two, uh, sexual orientation in the workplace, firing somebody because they're gay, and, and, and both of those cases raise this question, but under different sets of facts, I think you can have a fair reading of Title Seven that includes the possibility, and and that's reinforced by the case law, that sexual orientation is protected in the workplace. The transgender case is a more complicated one. This is uh, the facts just real quickly, because I think they distinguish it are um, a funeral home hires uh, a person to work there. Uh, At the time he presents as a man, he signs a dress code agreement at the point of his employment. And the dress code agreement is explicit about what both men and women have to wear. Uh, And it is that because the owner took the position that the clients of the funeral home are at the worst possible time in their life. They're grieving somebody who has died and they don't need distractions to use one of the Mm -hmm. words that's come up in the case. So men wear black suits, white shirts, plain ties. Women wear something comparably understated so that there isn't any sense in which they dress like undertakers. There isn't any sense in which the client would come in and see something unexpected or something unusual or something provocative. Uh, and, and so he's, he's agreed to those terms on the way in. He complies with them for six years. And then at the end of those six years, sends a note saying, I'm taking a two week vacation. And when I come back, I will have, I decided to present as a woman. My name will be Amy. 
Uh, I will be dressed in women's clothes. I intend at uh, some point in the near future to have uh, surgery, um, but, but I'm no longer going to honor the male dress code, uh, again, though, for the binary biological sex that I started this job as. Mm-hmm. The funeral home director says, um, I think that this presents a difficulty for the people who work here. I'm sorry, for the, the clients who are going to come in here. And I can't let you do that. So uh, one wonders if there won't be a more fact-based analysis of this case, given the long history of work, given the precondition of work, which was the dress code, and given the unique circumstances under which all of the employees there interact with uh, the clients of the funeral home. Maybe not, Mm -hmm. but I guess I just want to say, I think you can distinguish the two cases because I think you're right, Phil, that there is the possibility you can interpret Title VII reasonably to include uh, sexual orientation without also capturing so it, gender identity. It, it, when you say that there's mm-hmm. a factual consideration, I, you know, I, when, when you read Supreme Court, like when I teach international law and we, we read Supreme Court cases, we talk about how sometimes the Supreme Court seems to punt, right? They rule on a, on a specific issue rather than taking up the bigger issue before them. Is it possible that they rule on, uh, on the, the two cases regarding um, sexual orientation, but make of some more specific ruling on the trans case in a, in a way that they don't actually have to make the bigger decision about whether it's covered by uh, title seven. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I think the, the short answer I think is absolutely yes. The, the, the harder question is how they then decide that second case. So, so I think you're the way you describe the title seven use of the word sex and um, sexual orientation seems to me to make sense. And I could imagine Gorsuch being a fifth vote to say um, it does not exceed our obligations to the text of the law or the Constitution to say, treat people equally, period. Right? All Mm -hmm. men, all women, irrespective of who they're married to or partnered with. I could also see the court saying that the question in the transgender case is a more complicated one. And as I sit here talking about it, I'm trying to think about how they might address that. When they got the case that involved the person who wouldn't bake the cake, they had the advantage of a lower, uh, uh, it was an administrative body that was profoundly Mm -hmm. anti-religious and biased. And I wonder if they might not possibly say the EEOC here is the one that made this judgment, not a trial court, and that the EEOC ought not to be the one that makes a permanent judgment about how we manage this question in the workplace. It is a more complicated question. I realize it's an uncomfortable one to talk mm-hmm. about, and it's a difficult one to move through. But reasonable people can disagree about how this works in the workplace, I think, in a way that maybe as to the other two cases, they don't. Um, so it might focus on an administrative agency. Um, I could imagine them also saying, at this point, we're not prepared to read into Title VII mm-hmm. uh, sexual identity because that is a radically different thing than was true in 1964, whereas gay rights may not have been front burner in the ways they've been, let's say, in the last 20 years, but they were certainly thing mm-hmm. uh, something about which the people mm-hmm. who wrote the Civil Rights Act, we're aware. Mm-hmm. 
we're running out of time. I know you were writing about, do you have just, I, yeah. okay. Just one question. Cause I'm thinking you guys, you guys are so smart. I was thinking as you were talking and <laughs> you know, I, I, so we talk about the constitution <laughs> either as a, a firm document or a living document. And I'm not sure if that really captures what's going on here. And I was thinking about the role of learning. So we have these, con- we have law, let's say we have a law about health and the law says you should pursue something that's in the best health of whatever you're dealing with. That may change over time. We may adjust what we see as the most healthy approach. I wonder whether our understanding of sex hasn't evolved, whether we've learned more. And if so, you know, if we have a different understanding of sex, sexual orientation, should the law not reflect that new, more nuanced interpretation? And I I know that's a big jump there. But if we learn something and we better understand the dynamics of sex, sexual orientation, gender, all of that, does the law not have to, even if they weren't thinking about gender identity, sexual identity in that way, if we are more enlightened, should the law reflect that? Well, that's a weird term to use. No, and, I know, and- I know. And I, I'm, it's a leading question, right? Because I'm sure somebody could come and say, no, this is not a more enlightened interpretation of yeah. sex, right? I get that's a political element. But if it if it isn't, if we assume that this is a better position if we're more understanding of sex and sexual identity. I think that's a leading statement maybe, though. Maybe like, I, I think, I, I think this is such a, a, a complicated and regardless of, of the, the actual history of it, it's something that is still very kind of raw and emotional. I yeah. think for American society can, that we haven't yeah. really come to a consensus on any of, but this your generation yet. is getting close. Nick. We're, uh, yeah. There's it's not a, a soul yes. fogies. are going to be deciding this. <laughs> no. Um, the, the, yeah. No, go ahead. The effect of the precedent relative to the third case is significantly different than the effect of the precedent as to the first two. Mm -hmm. So one of the things the justices asked about uh, in the transgender case was, what will we do, for example, with the case bubbling up from Alaska where a women's shelter would have been a women's uh, a shelter for abused women would have been compelled to admit male uh, but presenting as female, um, what's the right word? Guests. Mm-hmm. This is harder than what do you do when somebody is gay in the workplace? Absolutely. I, I, mm-hmm. Maybe for some people it's not, but I guess I'll just say out loud for me, it is. Mm-hmm. What will we do about title nine and, and the presence of women in sport 15 of the state championships in Connecticut track and field in women's sports have been won by young men who present as women. Um, I'll just say, incidentally, that there is at least one of the amicus briefs in the case from a feminist organization that takes the position that this is undermining women's rights Mm -hmm. in very significant ways. So the massive social upheaval, and Phil, you're exactly right, he asked that question during this this third case. I, I, I can't see the court ruling in favor of Title VII coverage for gender identity without exception. I I just, I can't see it at this point. Mm -hmm. The laboratory of the states hasn't finished working. We don't have any idea how to address cases like Alaska. Uh, For goodness sake, states are still trying to figure out what to do about bathrooms and locker Mm -hmm. rooms. And, And the courts usually 
very nervous about being the final arbiter of a question. Can, can I ask a question about, I know we're, we're way over time, but uh, it seems like that, that statement that you made about how the, you know, the, the laboratory of the States haven't, haven't finished, you know, dealing with this issue of, of trans rights. That seems like an argument for the court not to mm-hmm. take this case by taking this case and ruling on yeah. it. Do they yes. end up setting a precedent that prevents the laboratory of the States from actually oh, yeah. kind of taking this up in a way that might be meaningful. Yeah, they might. And uh, that's Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should say that out loud. Again, whatever your position on, on the right to abortion, the argument that has been made since 1973 is the court took the case prematurely, produced an unusual approach to precedent to reach a conclusion that has now for 50 years mm-hmm. bedeviled America. You know, 45 years bedeviled America. And I, I, boy, I got to guess that these guys and and gals on the court are going to say, let's don't do that again. You you could be exactly right that they do. Uh, And, and I'm, and I'm still thinking through what will it look like if they try and find a narrow ruling? I think, I think the answer might be, this is the EEOC and they weren't authorized to make this judgment uh, independently of uh, a, some legal finding by, by the federal courts. If I, if I was a betting man, if I was on uh, our betting site, that would be the position (laughs) I'd take on it. But, but Phil, I think you're exactly right. A big ruling here is going to be more divisive than it is helpful. Correct. We we don't have consensus Mm -hmm. on this yet. At least we don't have consensus on the question of how we manage these things in real life. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're really, really hard. Mm Mm-hmm. Ooh, this was, I'm going to be thinking about this afterwards, Nick. This yeah. is good. <laughs> well, um, on that note, I think it just blew out my headphones for some reason. Um, anyways, Tom, thank you as always for joining yeah, us. This is good. This is, yeah. yeah. Um, if you guys were uh, not here at the beginning of the podcast, um, first and foremost, we are going to be going to be doing a, a live event uh, on Wednesday, November 20th at 6.30 p.m., uh, on North Central College's campus here in Naperville. Um, we'll give you some more information uh, as we get closer. Uh, it's going to be uh, me, Bill, Phil, Tom, Suzanne. It's going to be great. Um, powerhouse. Powerhouse. Yeah. Um, if you guys have the opportunity, absolutely come out. We would love to, to see all the, the listeners. Um, in addition to that, uh, if you guys want to check out what we're doing on the podcast, uh, questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, and the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Um, again, review us, share us, like us through there. Um, we always appreciate the support. Uh, anything else, guys? No, this was a lot of fun. Lots I felt like we, we dove in deep this week. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again, Tom. We'll see you soon. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Cheer- guys. Cheers. Shut up and sit down.